Good morning. Our scripture reading comes from two passages. Our first reading is from Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6 and 10 through 12. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now we'll turn to Acts chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask? Does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Barry. I don't suppose anything makes a deeper impression on us than suffering and pain. Pain and suffering make lasting impressions on us. In fact, if we were to tell the stories of our lives today, I, I would open with the most significant memory that I have of early in life suffering. You would probably tell your story by marking your life with these milestones of suffering along the way. 
What milestones of suffering mark your path? What, where are the places where suffering has marked your life? And there's been an indelible impression on your heart and mind and your psyche and all that, whatever the deepest parts of the constitution of man are, suffering gets there. And your suffering may be heavier than mine, or maybe you've experienced less suffering. The point is not that we would compare our pain like warriors sitting around the campfire bragging about old scars. Have you seen this one, you know? But that God is doing something in your suffering, that is the point. God is doing something in, in, in your suffering. He's trying to get your attention. I mean, we can almost ignore all the good stuff. We become so dependent on it. We, we can almost ignore our pleasures. We become so dependent on them. But pain and suffering cannot be ignored. And as C.S. Lewis famously said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. He really gets our attention with pain and suffering. God uses pain and suffering. What is God doing with suffering? He, God uses pain and suffering to open our hearts to him. To, he's methodically peeling back the layers of your self-sufficiency. He is, he is purposefully removing self-sovereignty. He's, he's kind of taking you off of the throne. It's, it's hard to feel like a king or a queen when you're suffering. He's, he's, prying, he's prying your grip, which is so strong. You're, he's prying your grip off of your life. Like to say, you're not your own. You're mine. And I'm doing something in the midst of your suffering. True suffering is designed to bring you to a place of helplessness for one main reason. What do you think that is? To discover God. To discover what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, that's when I discovered grace. My grace is sufficient for you. Because in my weakness, right? My power is perfected in your weakness. My power is perfected in your moment of weakness. We're meeting God in these moments of suffering. And if you're not meeting God in these moments of suffering, you're missing the very intention of the divine will of God to even get you to that place. Again, listen to what Lewis says. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The human spirit will not even begin to surrender self-will as long as everything seems to be well with it. You and I won't even begin to budge. We won't even begin to surrender a little bit of self-will as long as everything is as it should be. We're good. But all of a sudden, suffering comes, storms come, the disease weakens me, 
The, the brokenness weakens me. The, re, the broken relationship weakens me. Uh, the person who's opposed to us, who wants to, seems like they want to ruin our lives, that begins to weaken us. And then we start looking to Christ toward a surrender, toward a posture of humility and independence. Something else you should know about God is that God doesn't hand out suffering assignments like an angry old spinster at the schoolhouse. That's not what he does. He steps down into this world of pain and suffering all the way into this apparent God-forsaken place. That's why the creed says Jesus, his only son, our Lord, suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's why the creed's line is so important because God is stepping down into this world of pain and suffering into a wasteland. He's not staying back here and throwing out suffering assignments. He steps down into our world, the creed confesses, the biblical truth. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. I don't suppose anything makes a deeper impression on you than suffering except perhaps one thing, one thing. The healing, life-giving grace of the one who suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now that will make a deeper impression on you. And it'll make a life-changing impression on you. So we want to think about that today. Uh, we want to think about the amazing thought from these great suffering passages in the Bible. We want to think about this single line, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And, and that line comes from, as we've said over and over again, the creed is not the Bible, but it's resourced. Every line, every word is resourced, funded, comes from Scripture itself. So there are great suffering passages in the Bible, passages like Isaiah and Acts and Romans and First Peter and the Gospels, where over and over again in each of those places, Jesus is seen to be the one who gives true meaning Jesus is the one who gives true meaning to all human suffering. We read about this. It's a macro theme in the scriptures. Over and over again, we learn about the suffering of Christ. And we just want to focus on one of those great passages today, Isaiah 53. And we've chosen Isaiah 53 because it is, it, I think, personal opinion, I think it's the most vivid and thorough description of the suffering of Christ in the Old Testament. There are a number of psalms that get at it, but man, I think few things portray vividly and as comprehensively the suffering of Jesus than the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. So what I, I want to do is make four, four uh, simple observations, four biblical observations about the suffering of Jesus in the time that we've got this morning and um, I want to do my best to, to hit each one of them. Number one, his suffering was real. His suffering was real. Look at Isaiah 53 and verse 1. Isaiah writes, Who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed our report? 
Let me give you a little bit of biblical context here. Isaiah is calling Israel to trust in God's suffering servant. By the time you get into the 40s in Isaiah, Israel is the servant of God, and Isaiah's prophesying about how God's servant should be his people, his servant, in obedience and love and faithfulness, but Israel is not. Then as you get closer in towards, say, the, maybe chapter 49 or so, it, the suffering servant becomes more concrete, even more personal, and individual is, is being described. So starting in Isaiah 49, we learn that the suffering servant will be the one who delivers Israel and will be the faithful one that Israel was not. And what's interesting about the language of what's happening in this text is that it must be a distinct individual person. It can no longer be a gathered people. The way that this text reads from Isaiah 49 all the way through 53, especially 52 and 53, I'm thinking this morning, it must be an individual person. In fact, you can't make sense of the text if it's not an individual person. A single person distinct from Israel, one who would one day really, this is the prophecy, one day really and personally suffer on behalf of Israel. That's the promise. So look at verse 14 of the previous chapter, 52. 52, 14. He's a real member of mankind. The children of man, verse 14. Drop back down to verse 2 of 53. He grew up in the midst of God's people. He was a real person. He was despised and rejected, verse 3 says. A man of, of sorrows. A man who felt grief and loss and pain and suffering. The suffering of Jesus, the promised Messiah, was very real. In fact, I think if you just kind of step back and look at this passage again and again, if you read and reread 52 and 53, you'll get this sense that he was a real person who really suffered. When the Apostle Paul calls us in Romans 10 to trust in Christ, guess what passage of the Bible he quotes? Isaiah 53. And he says, he's the Christ. And he says, people should believe in him, this real person, Jesus of Nazareth, who really lived, who really suffered, who really died, and who really rose. Some, might, some of you might be asking this question. How did the bad guy work his way into the creed? Why, like, why would we even include Pontius Pilate in the creed? Some people have asked that question. Why, why, why is Pilate's name suffered under Pontius Pilate? Why is Pilate's name, the man who sanctioned the crucifixion, even given any press? Come on, aren't you guys controlling the narrative? The reason, one of the reasons we think Pilate's name was wisely included, one early 5th uh, century theologian and historian said it this way, those who handed down the creed showed great wisdom in marking the actual date when these things happened, including Pilate. 
is much like what, like what the biblical authors do in, say, Luke chapter 3, when Luke's telling the story, and he says, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's rule, when Pontius Pilate was governor, these things happened. The, the creed is marking the reality that this, this happened in time and space historically, so that there'd be no chance of uncertainty or vagueness. The creed puts a time stamp on this moment, and anybody can verify that Jesus of Nazareth is the one that they're talking about. Including Pilate in the creed is really a masterful move by those who wrote the, those who crafted the creed. It's a masterful, because it, 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 it marks when this, it does several other things, we're gonna talk about those this morning, but it, it's really insightful to see this happened, and there was a responsible Roman governor overseeing the whole thing. The next time you feel the weight of personal suffering, the next time you feel the weight of real personal suffering, and it's going to happen. For some of you, it's going to happen this week. Um, for some of you, it's going to happen this month. For some of you, it's going to happen this year. Um, happy Sunday morning. <laughs> Yeah, suffering is coming. So, aren't you glad you came to church? But look, here's the good news of the gospel. Next time you feel the weight of real suffering, realize this. The Son of God suffered not so you could bypass pain and suffering, not so that you could find your way around pain and suffering, but rather so that your suffering would find its ultimate meaning in the gospel of Christ, in drawing you to a place of dependence on the one who suffered for you. It was real. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a story about some fictional country. It really happened. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Here's the second thing. His suffering was public. I think the second reason that the creed includes a reference to Pontius Pilate is to, is to affirm the public nature of Jesus' suffering and crucifixion. Alistair McGrath points this out in his, his great introduction to the creed, and I think he's right. What 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 What's happening when you see Pilate referenced in the creed is that it's a way of saying this was, a, this was a public event. An official Roman leader oversaw this public event and the world in the process was unwilling to acknowledge its Savior. Jesus' life and ministry ended in full public view. Think about that. It's hard to imagine how more public shame and more humiliation could have been piled up on Jesus. Back to Isaiah 53. Despised, rejected. Verse 5. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. A vivid description of the physical suffering of the cross. Scholars are right to say this passage does not make sense unless the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is in view. I mean, this is so vividly a description of what happens on the cross. He is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. 
You've got to ask, the perp- what's the purpose behind this? What is the purpose behind this? The purpose behind it is in verse 5, by his wounds we will be healed. Through his shame you will be covered. Through his suffering God's wrath will be satisfied. And you can discover peace with God. Think about the last time you were humiliated. Could be a simple form of shame or humiliation, or maybe it's more significant. The apostles never tire of saying that Jesus took shame, took humiliation, took the failures and brokenness of this world and and took it on himself to do something with it, to to reverse this powerful curse of shame. So look at verse 8 of Isaiah 53. Verse 8 says, He was cut off. He was cut off from the land of the living, where all the living is happening, where all the good, happy, amazing living, living is happening. He's cut off from that. He's cut off from the land of the living. He died in verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked. They made an innocent man. So, so an innocent man is numbered among the transgressors. transgressors. He's, he's counted as with the wicked. He's going to die and be buried on the same day as the wicked. That's utterly humiliating, especially if you're, if you're without reason, if you're without injustice, if, I mean, if you're without without doing anything wrong, if you're innocent. His public suffering, so you read Isaiah 53 over and over again, you'll get this, this sense of public humiliation, public shame. His, his public suffering was a deeply ironic statement about salvation. Anyone watching could receive His grace, and yet they mock Him. That, that's, that's deeply ironic. It's deeply ironic that the Savior of the world who, who's, standing, who, who's hanging there to bring salvation to man is, is at the same time both mocked and offering grace, both shamed and extending, forgive them. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. His suffering was public for a reason, right? For God so loved the, the world His suffering was public, and Isaiah's prophecy calls attention to the public nature of his suffering. Numbered among the transgressors so that you don't have to be shamed, humiliated. He's going to reverse the curse of shame and humiliation. Here's the third thing that he does, um, or that his suffering... we, We learn from Scripture that the third idea that's embedded in the Creed's reference to suffer under Pontius Pilate. And this one's also connected to Pilate. The third idea that is embedded in the Creed's reference to Pilate, which Scripture echoes over and over again, is that the world has rejected its Creator. The world has rejected its Creator, and even worse, its Savior. The world has rejected the Son of God. Pilate is the embodied representation of the world rejecting the Son of God. If Pilate represents anything in the Bible and in the creed, it's the rejection of Jesus and who he is and what he came to do. 
The New Testament, especially the Gospels, describe the rejection of Jesus over and over again. The rejection of Jesus. The rejection of Jesus. It's like you just keep turning the pages of the Gospels and you will see see some believing but many rejecting. He's rejected by those who knew him from childhood in Nazareth. He's rejected by the Jewish leaders as if he was a religious heretic. He was condemned by Pilate as a political threat. The world disowns Jesus over and over again in the scriptures. Isaiah 53 is a uh, vivid, again, such a vivid picture of the world disowning the Son of God. It's a macro theme, again, in Scripture. And in theological terms, it, it just, I think it can be boiled down to really one simple idea that the sinfulness and the rebellious nature of human beings is what's behind this rejection. The rebellion of mankind. No matter who we are, no matter who you are, education, no matter what your education is, your race, your ethnicity, gender, every single one of us are rebellious sinners who have rejected our Creator and our compassionate Savior who came to rescue us. Look at verses 7 through 9. Look at how he was betrayed by his own. We were just singing this. We just, we're just singing this. By his own betrayed. Verse 7, he was oppressed. He was oppressed. Oppression is about injustice. Oppression is something that is that is not deserved. I mean, that's that's what the idea means. The idea of oppression is that he's he's afflicted and and, and he's undeserving. He's oppressed and yet he's 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 wrong. He's mistreated and yet he goes there quietly innocently slaughtered like a lamb the beautiful image here uh, again in verse in verse 7 like a lamb led to slaughter the idea of this now don't like don't don't move through that too quickly the lamb is sort of the embodiment of this innocent thing that doesn't really know what's happening to it and yet it walks forward and it it's slaughtered Jesus knows exactly what's happening, but he walks forward, completely innocent, and lets the oppression and the injustice be poured out on him. The world is rejecting him, betraying him. He's wrongly judged, verse 8, wrongly judged to the point of death. He's cut off from the land of the living. He's made a curse. The apostles will talk about this uh, you know, in several places. He's made a curse on our, in our place. He's made a curse. Cursed is every, everyone who hangs on a tree. He was made a curse so that he could reverse the curse of sin and shame. And they made his grave with the wicked numbered among the transgressors. You just go on and on and on. The world's rejection is, so 
his own people are rejecting him. The world, mankind, you, you've got a couple different layers of this. You've got Israel rejecting him. You've got mankind rejecting him. And then you've got particular people rejecting him. Remember the Ethiopian man who was an official? We just read about it in Acts chapter 8. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this again. In his, this is, so he's, so, so, um, Philip is helping the Ethiopian, who's a uh, you know, highly respected official in the queen's court, understand what he's reading from Isaiah. And it's that passage, like a sheep who was led to the slaughter. And then verse 33 of Acts 8 says this, still quoting Isaiah, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. The world is rejecting him. The world's rejecting who he is, what he stands for, his innocence, his godliness, his everything, everything that he is. The embodiment of justice and true, humili uh, true humility, and the world is rejecting that. The great injustice of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ is that he did not deserve any of it. None of it. That's the great injustice of the world's rejection of Jesus. He deserves nothing of that. You know? I was thinking earlier this week about a problem and, and there was some tension and it was kind of a relational issue and, 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 then, and then I, and I don't know where it came from, I'm hoping it was the spirit, and, but I, it just became clear to me, you know what, you had a part in this. You, you, you need to own a part of this. You had a part in this problem. That, this is mind-blowing, but that never happened to Jesus. Jesus never woke up the, the next morning and said to himself, oh, you know, I shouldn't have been so dang angry with her. Having crossed the line into sin, that never happened to him. Justice. He was the embodiment of justice. He's perfect. He's the embodiment of justice. Humanly speaking, the suffering of Jesus at the hands of evil men is one long pronouncement of the world's injustice. One long pronouncement of the world's foolishness. Here's the last thing, and we'll wrap it up. Number four, his suffering was necessary. It was necessary. Necessary for our redemption. Do you remember what we learned in John's gospel? That behind Pilate's earthly authority and power, do you remember this? Behind Pilate's earthly authority and power, Jesus sees the hand of God. No matter how vile the secondary causes might be, the alternative is unthinkable, right? God is not just outwitting his enemies in a chess match. That would reduce the mission of the Son of God to an afterthought. And that's not the way the Bible portrays it. God is doing something. Mysterious and amazing through the suffering of Jesus. Listen to this. God is doing something mysterious and amazing through the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is reversing the curse. God is at work. Where is that in Isaiah 53? Verse 10, it couldn't be any clearer. Uh, 
it was the will of the Lord to crush him. There are two things that we, we affirm over and over again, and they might appear to be at odds with each other, but they're not. His suffering exposed the world's foolishness, as we just described. But secondly, or and secondly, it is a testimony to the work of God. God is doing something in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. God is sovereignly, actively, purposefully at work in the suffering of Christ. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. You've got to have some room in your theology for that. Or the, the New Testament is just not going to make a lot of sense. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The suffering of the Son of God was not a surprise to God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. To put him to grief and suffering. So that, look at this in verse 10. So that his soul would become an offering for you. A guilt offering. Like, he's not a guilty soul, you're a guilty soul. He's not a guilty soul, I'm a guilty soul. He becomes the offering to assuage the wrath of God, to divert the wrath of God away from you. Drop back to verse 4 and notice what we call over and over again the big idea of substitutionary atonement. In my place, on my behalf, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He carried them. He was smitten by God for us, afflicted for us, for verse 5, for our transgressions, for our iniquities. And then check this out. Look at verse 11. You, you, you may have heard it when Barry read it a few moments ago, or maybe it didn't hit you. Listen to this. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. How are you going to get righteousness? If you're a person who struggles with with righteousness, with being righteous, with understanding what it means to be good and right. If you're a person like anybody else in this room who's wondering, okay, how can I be, how could I one day be perfect? How could I one day be righteous? There's only really one way to get righteousness, to be accounted righteous. It's through the suffering servant of Christ. It's through the suffering servant. He will bear their iniquities, and, and he will reckon them, he will account them to be righteous. This is the same kind of language you read about Genesis, uh, about Abraham in Genesis, who by faith was accounted or reckoned to be righteous before God. Abraham doesn't bring his own righteousness before God. His righteousness doesn't add up before God. My righteousness doesn't add up. I'm going to need somebody else's righteousness on my behalf in my place. His suffering was necessary for your redemption. His suffering and death on the cross was not pointless or accidental. 
It was the mysterious and wonderful means by which God is working out salvation. If you will trust, if you'll stop, so I said that God was using suffering to try to get you to sort of pry your hands loose of your, the grip on your own life. You know, like, why is this happening to me? If you will start to see the suffering that's in your life as, as God trying to get your attention so that not only can he make you more and more like his son through suffering, but that your ultimate hope would be to throw yourself fully and completely on the mercy of Christ, his righteousness on your behalf. I want to pray that God will help us to understand uh, the purposes of suffering this morning. I also want to pray that if you are here and you're asking why, we've thrown a lot at you this morning. If you're asking why, that you'd be willing to talk to somebody, uh, your spouse, your friend, one of us, about what God is doing in the midst of your suffering. Lord, thank you that the gospel is coming alive to us in Isaiah 53 and that suffering is real and that it finds its purpose in Christ. God, help us to stop trying to perfect ourselves and being surprised that we are broken, wounded, weak, sick, healing, uh, in need of healing. Teach us more about the gospel today. Teach us about your righteousness. Teach us about peace. Deep shalom that could come through the healing work of Christ in his suffering. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.